Welcome to the Business of PT podcast with today's guest, Ollie Patrick. Hi, my name is Adam Daniel. I have delivered over 26,000 PT sessions, trained over 10,000 PTs in 20 countries, created and delivered education for some of the world's leading fitness brands, owned a gym, and with the help of my expert guests, all of whom have had great success in different ways, we will dive deep into how to build a profitable, robust, resilient, and most importantly, a PT business that you can be proud of, whilst having some fun along the way. The business of PT is part of a collective, a network of fitness industry professionals whose purpose is to help the industry share, collaborate, and grow. Before we start, a brief word from this season's sponsor. This episode is supported by Your Personal Training. Build a fulfilling career with the UK's largest and most successful PT brand, Your Personal Training. Your Personal Training offers quite simply the best financial support and career development package around. With a network of over 450 personal trainers nationwide, you are not alone and will find yourself in an environment at Your Personal Training that is supportive and focused towards helping you achieve your dreams as a PT. Visit their website for more information, yourpersonaltraininguk.co.uk. Welcome to the Business of PT podcast, and I am really, really excited about our guest today, mainly because probably two or three episodes now, we have actually had some of our podcast guests mention the man himself. He's come up in conversation because he is doing some brilliant stuff within the health and fitness fitness industry at the moment. So I'm really pleased to welcome Ollie Patrick. Hello, Ollie. How are you today? I'm well, Adam. What a treat. And I'm delighted that I'm getting shout outs on this on this new but very exciting podcast, which I'm enjoying well, enormously. Shouts to the, to the extent when I asked you, Hanley, who would like to share a sauna with, you were one of the three people who would like to share a sauna with. So you might be getting emails from, from Houston. <laughs> Can we have a sauna sometime, Ollie? That, that's the extent of your getting shout outs. Also, though, because you are doing some really amazing and brilliant stuff that is really helping move the fitness industry, I believe anyway, forwards. And I think a lot of it, people would agree with me. Certainly moving forwards in the direction that it, it probably needs to go, which we'll get into later on in the conversation. Now, I know that you've done some amazing things in your career. However, I think it's probably easier if you just let the listen, listeners know what exactly you've done now 25 26 years you've been in the industry you've got some amazing accolades you've got some brilliant experiences just give us a bit of a highlight highlight reel of what you've done over the last 25 years then ollie a great shout there'd be nothing in my career as exciting as a, as a sharing a hot tub or sauna with hugh hanley so let <laughs> me just pencil that in for 2023 spring and he wants that so he looks even better in the hot tub i can tell you that I, yeah, weird old career, Adam, came out of exercise science and, and physiology and dropped into health screening. And at that point, exercise professionals were being used at the latter end of health screens to run stress electrocardiograms and, and give a lifestyle program. I, I sort of became obsessive with, with delivering a health screen slash assessment that was of value and got really interested in how a very bit part role could, could get bigger and broader. And ended up in some relatively pioneering medical centers where we stretched the role of an exercise scientist into being not just an afterthought, but actually the core of the health assessment and brought in technologies like heart rate variability to start talking about stress and antioxidant measurements, to start talking about nutritional quality and bringing in, you know, biomechanical analysis, to start talking about movement and moved a, a screening product to an assessment product and moved a bit part player to sort of the hub of the model, which is sort of logical when you think someone going for a health assessment is well. So why is the practitioner team specialists in disease? And in that role ended up under the, the redirection of Nuffield Health, being the original professional head of physiology at Nuffield and forming a team of a hundred sort of exercise scientists plus who could go out, take blood, run stress electrocardiograms, but more importantly, give quality lifestyle advice using objective data that previously hadn't been in that domain. And then that, that sort of led in that area, we ended up Cannons, as you, you know, as, as you might know, sorry, Nuffield bought Cannons, a commercial gym estate. And we looked at how can this sort of medicalized well-being model translate into commercial gyms and had lots of fun experience in that. 
and then went on to sort of pursue the health assessment agenda more and co-founded a company to deliver the world's most advanced health assessment when I left Nuffield. So spent 12 years on Harley Street trying to work out whether someone was well or not, you know, and, and start by defining what on earth that meant. So really working in multidisciplinary medical teams with advanced screening, advanced predictalytics. So trying to work out if me at 45, I look more like a 55 year old or a 35 year old. And I'm not sharing with you the answer to that. Uh, you would work it out in the hot tub. Yeah, so within, within that, and then equally, you're really, you know, advanced use of functional diagnostic to try and understand the physiology behind feeling. So if I've got brain fog, what is that? Is that a blood glucose problem? Is that a digestive or gut microbiome problem? And really synergize the way people felt to a, a huge you know, range of biological testing and then curate lifestyle strategy. So, okay, we've determined that the best thing you could do is X. And now we've got all this data to prove whether X moved the dial or not. So I've been a very accountable practitioner in the fact that if I said something was going to work for you, we had a lot of data to prove me right or prove me wrong. And then left that company in, in sort of the beginning of COVID. And, and now I work as the, the well-being director for, a, for a, a medical company, Latest Health, where we're trying to re-engineer health assessments for the modern corporate need. I work as clinical director for a um, a luxury hospitality company called Pillar Wellbeing, trying to put intelligent, integrated wellbeing offerings into luxury hotels. And probably more, most relevant to this, co-founded Future Practice, which is a, a sort of an education platform to take the skills I've learned in, in this weird space between medicine and fitness and democratize that into the fitness and personal training community to say, can we have a bigger, broader role in, in health and wellbeing above and beyond sets, reps, aesthetics, you know, and, and maybe special populations where, where can we really hit gen pop with a broader offering and, and give technical capability in areas like discussions around stress, discussions around sleep, discussions around, you know, wearable metrics of heart rate variability, which are, which are prolific to the consumer, but not bridged perhaps through the, the professional as I would like it to be. That's a potted history. I'm taking up 90% of the time. Thanks and good night. Not for the, the <laughs> that, that's one of the reasons why I've got you. I wanted you on this convo, in this conversation, Ollie, is, is because of this amazing experience and wealth of knowledge that you have in, a, in an area that I think as well, and also in the conversations on, on previous episodes of the show, it's an area or way that the industry is certainly moving towards. And we will get into kind of your thoughts around this later on. Yeah. When I have asked the question, the future of personal training within the show, it has been down the, gone down the road of this. Well, we need to look beyond, as you've said, the sets and the reps. We need to look beyond exercise and exercises and programming different types of exercises for a certain outcome. We yep. need to get the human being in essence, don't we? And understand what's going on, not just externally, yet also internally using data, using evidence to then go, okay, let's make some more informed choices of, of what we're doing with our lives, if you like. And a word that you haven't used yet jumped into my head was this idea of longevity as well. So looking at health span versus lifespan, maybe. Massively. And I think that, that represents an immediate commercial opportunity because, you know, we, we've seen life expectancy stagnate a little bit. I was looking at some statistics the other day and, and the life expectancy for males dropped last year and, and females dropped also. So we've got We've hit a sort of ceiling of, of extending life expectancy, which is terrifying on one level, but you know, the number of years spent ill is, is rising. So quality affected life years, those years of, of reduced functional capacity uh, are extending. And of course, when you talk to people about preventative health, they're like, oh, I don't want to live longer because I see my grandmother or my great grandmother and it's not a great quality of life. But what we're really talking about is there is a huge opportunity to remain above a functional threshold later in life. And, and the single biggest thing, if I go to like a really advanced longevity clinic over in the States and you and I consume content in this space, I know. So, you know, would it be NAD infusions? Would it be stem cells? Would it be, you know, resveratrol? Will it be metformin? All those things. Weight training will be probably number one, right? Yeah. So is, is the loss of muscle as I age correlatory with aging or is it causative of aging? Right. So if I physically lose muscle as I age, which I do through the process of sarcopenia, then of course I reduce my activity levels. I reduce joint stability. I reduce my ability to absorb carbohydrate in the form of blood glucose. I have a, 
diminishing capability in so many areas as a direct result of that single loss of tissue. And there's only one thing that will preserve that tissue, and that's demand put upon it. There's only really one place I can do that, unless I'm a farmer or a, a you know a laborer, which is unlikely in my 70s, which is a gym. And I, and I went to a, the Performance Conference two years ago when I sort of first emerged out of the medical world back into fitness. And I was like, do we not realize our gyms are full of the wrong people? Because a 23-year-old is going to keep muscle mass pretty, pretty cohesively. They're full of you know, males full of testosterone, females full of estrogen, they're full of stem cells still. They're, they're, they are an opportunity of a physiological entity. 50-year-old, 60-year-old, they are a degrading resource and they need external input critically. Doesn't mean fitness can't be a hobby. Doesn't mean performance, fitness, CrossFit, high rocks can't, can't exist and build those communities. You know, fitness as a sport, aesthetics as, a, as an objective, great. But this absolute absence of provision to the aging population and recognizing that muscle mass, just as a singular point of why we age, sits at the fulcrum of, of, of health span and longevity. And gyms aren't even using that language, just I find baffling, truthfully. It, there's a word you've used, I think, three or four times now, and it's opportunity. Mm. And I'm just sitting here listening to you and thinking, wow, as a, as a personal trainer now, there is so much opportunity in, in everything you just shared there from okay, we've got a population that is, is living less or living lo- uh, shorter, sorry, shorter life. Yeah lifespan in there. We've got a population that isn't, even though they're, the, the lifespan is there, they're not moving well, they're not functioning well, they're not healthy. So they're not enjoying later life. You've got a, a population there that just isn't moving and therefore isn't embracing the joy of life out there, which I yes. think is really sad. And so as a personal trainer listening to this, what would be your advice? Oh, and yeah, that's a great question. I think that the first thing is to recognize that, that the skills you have, have an enormous impact on almost every facet of human existence, right? So your ability to program movement, and, and let's be clear, most people in the personal training space are a movement specialist. They're able to curate appropriate movement patterns to overwhelm my musculoskeletal capability through weight training, overwhelm my cardiovascular capability through aerobic or, or cardiovascular training, probably overwhelm my mobility and biomechanical patterns by, you know, giving me good stretching or assisted stretching or Pilates or yoga. You've got this incredible toolkit to manipulate those, those three domains. And actually, if I look at what's happening to me in my lifespan, a large number of things that I'll complain about are degradation of aerobic capacity, muscle mass capability, and, and mobility and pliability. So you, you have a skill set that's a primary intervention for one of the major things people complain about. Is that the, where, where is the immediate commercial opportunity of that? I suppose the first and foremost is to broaden the dialogue that I'm a place where you control body composition, right? Body composition is, is a byproduct of, you know, of course, energy balance and a movement and retention of muscle mass is a primary determinant of that, probably less so than the nutritional capability. But fundamentally, if I want to go to a dinner party and sign up 15 people to a, to a gym, I've got to create a narrative above and beyond, this will help you control your weight and this will make you feel better. Because they're, they're too intangible and, they, and we make the assumption that weight is a big enough driver. You know, whatever, 13.5-14% penetration of the UK population into gyms, it, it's been stagnant at that for too long because lots of people don't massively care what they look like, but they do care that their energy levels are 20% less than they used to be. They do care that they now get the bug that goes around the office. They didn't. They do care they have got reduced sex drive. They do care they've got brain fog. And what they've got is they're being sold products promise, you know, in most cases, a false promise of improving that particular symptom. But if I, if I just took the 15 people at dinner party and I made, I gave all of them an extra kilogram and a half of lean tissue and muscle, I gave them all an extra 5% on their aerobic capacity, let's imagine VO2 max. And I gave them all a robust movement pattern that meant they were, you know, a good range of motion, good control under motion, for example, whatever they're complaining about at dinner party is going to affect them less unequivocally. So. I've got to stop reducing the, the, the toolkit I've got to a very narrow benefit. And I've got to broaden that benefit. And I would talk to anybody about anything that's wrong with them and say, well, I'm not going to be causative. I'm not going to say, oh, if I improve your aerobic capacity, you won't be as affected by the chemotherapy you're going under, or you won't worry about the, the marriage breakout you've gone going through. But I would say, if I improve your aerobic capacity, that thing will affect you less because I'm building fundamentally 
the resilience of your physiology. And what people forget is that, you know, we, you, I, we are our physiologists. We sit here now with a function of all the electronic chemical signaling that's going on and, mo and movement is the single best opportunity to manipulate that variable and, and do one of two things. A, stop it getting worse as I get older, but B, actually make it better as I get older. And so fitness has undersold itself so badly for so long. And, and, it, and we flip around and go, well, with, with the special POPs people, oh, you've got cancer, this will reduce the symptomology of your, of your chemotherapy, or you've got type two diabetes, this will turn it down. So we've got the special POPs being driven to exercise because they're being told it, it might reduce their need. You've got the, the body aware and the, and the fitness crowd over here. But most people are neither of those groups. Most people are just normal people who don't care about fitness, but they do care about how they feel. And they need to believe that some actions taken twice a week or three times a week in a, in a particularly skilled environment will move the dial to the thing that bothers them. And that, that means for me, I, I can't see a reason why anyone over the age of 40 wouldn't have some form of gym or exercise professional in their life because every single person over 40 needs it. Wow. There's a lot to digest there, Orion. I'm still processing a lot of what you said because you used some exceptionally long words, even for me. Sorry, pal. And now I love it. I love Awful. it. I love it. So, okay. What we're looking at there is what you're saying is there's ultimately this gap. So we've got these body conscious, body aware people who, and we're going to make a, a, a generalization. They're generally going to be younger as well. They're going to be twenties, early oh, thirties. Yeah. Then we have the, these people who are being told by medical professionals that actually you need to go and walk on a treadmill. You need to go and sit on a stationary bike to help you battle some kind of, of disease, let's yes. say. There's this huge gap in the middle. And as a personal trainer, that now to me, what I'm hearing is that's, that's just a huge opportunity. Yet there's also this massive challenge because the perception of the general public is very different to what they actually need, isn't it? You, you mentioned this idea that, or the reality is that it, per, a lot of personal trainers sell themselves as fat loss coaches, weight loss, it's get ready for the beach in the summer, bikini fit. It's all about how we look. Yes. Again, a word you've used many times in this conversation is people actually care about how they feel. And that's oh. so much more important. And I think as an industry, we need to begin to change that narrative because that narrative is very much about how you look. And even if we look at the marketing, some of the, the bigger gym chains out there, some gym, gym, some gym chains I, I respect as businesses, yeah, even when you look at their marketing, it's clearly targeted at how somebody looks yes. as how somebody feels. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot here. And I realize Good. we've got this challenge. We've got this narrative driven by we might say the media slash our industry that it's about looking good, although that is slowly changing. Yeah. We have personal trainers that are out there who are jumping all these various business programs and being told they've got to have this niche and help people what they do, which is all about, I help women over the age of 40 lose body fat and all those kinds of things. That, that's fine. That's good. And it helps you build a business. Yes. However, if you were advising a personal trainer to build a resilient, robust business, what was the, what's the one thing or what would be the target market for you? If you had to give me your elevator pitch, what would it be? You rascal, Adam, you rascal. That's a good question. I, I think, I think we've got to go to the pinch point most people have, which is, you know, at, at all ages and stages. So if I take the existing gym market, you know, of, of maybe 20 to 35 and, and aesthetically interested, we'll find a similar problem to if we go to the older age group, which is low energy levels. You know, most people are, are drained. We saw a recent corporate well-being report that I'm sure you saw too, which showed sort of 80% of millennials citing burnout, a misappropriation of the word burnout, but there's this general feel people are knackered, right? And, and what we've got is, is we have a sort of modern day crisis of inadequate restoration and recovery. And so I think the first and immediate opportunity is, is recognizing that movement is one domain that affects my physiology. So as I sit here now, I'm affected by, yeah, whether I've loaded up strength work, loaded up cardio work, loaded up mobility or stretching. But my physiology is also affected by my sleep, equally affected my sleep, by my ability to breathe, my ability to go into, into energy restoration. It's also equally affected by my nutrition. Let's just take those three things and say, okay, if I'm training with someone 
and I'm trying to manipulate their entire existence through one domain. And I, I normally break things into five domains, but of those three, movement, nutrition, recovery. If I'm only controlling one, I can never expect great results. And it's very likely that the pinch point in the way the person in front of you is, is describing that they're, they're symptomatic of low energy or they've got exhaustion is not through an absence of appropriate movement. It's through an absence of appropriate recovery. You know, I, I don't want to say it's a biased point of view because I've made a digital course on this. So it's not, it's not a sprat to catch the mackerel, but I wrote that course because I cannot believe that the narrative of recovery, sleep and stress is completely absent from the gym floor because you know, you and I learned right back in the days when we we're doing our original training, I know you did about five master's degrees on, on top, but you know, we learned about super compensation and the fact that damage is damage. And then I repair and I repair to a higher level, but that biological understanding of that repair is, is so absent. You know, what is good sleep? What is stress? What is digestion? That piece is missing. So if I want to have a better communication with my clients and solve the problem that they're actually bothered about, which would be energy expressed. I have to be as capable in recovery as I am in load. And I think that piece is missing. I think most people on the gym floor have got some understanding of macros and calorie density, and they might have accidentally absorbed a podcast. That means they've got a, a very narrow philosophical approach to, to nutrition, you know, plus minus that's fine. But I, I, I'm the thing that terrifies me is that if I don't sleep, of course, I don't produce melatonin and melatonin precursor to growth hormone. I don't get gains. If I don't sleep, I don't regulate my immune system. If I don't sleep, I don't consolidate learning, you know, who's guiding me on that? And we've got to be very aware that, you know, particularly my time in medicine, there's this gap, which I'd call the preclinical. You know, of course, when I've got a sleep problem, there is a sleep center I can go to, to check out if I've got a breathing difficulty or if I've got a genuine sort of form of, of insomnia, et cetera. So we're not asking the shop floor, the PT, the fitness instructor to become a doctor. You know, I guarantee everyone, and I, I did a, again, you and I both do corporate talks and, and one of the areas we, we often talk about is sleep. And, you know, there was over 80% of people cited that they had an existing sleep issue in a talk I did the other day to, to about a hundred people. And, and none of those people have pursued that through medical realms because it's not quite bad enough. And of course, in the same way as I don't think someone necessarily needs to go and see a clinical nutritionist when 50% of their diet is highly, highly processed food, but, you know, isn't it logical that before we start diving into organic acids and advanced blood work, that we just drop out some processed food, which is absent in nutrients, absent in fiber. You don't have to chew it. And I add in some whole foods, which has got fiber, got nutrients, and you do have to chew it and see if that moves the dial. Likewise, how are we sending people off to, to doctors to deal with sleep when we haven't determine basic things like consistency of sleep, mm -hmm. you know, sleep time and wake time, understanding of light and dark, caffeine, you know, alcohol. So it's wild that that narrative is absent from the gym floor and, and we're just leaving it to products to control the well-being of our clients. So, you know, someone's coming in for their, for their loading with their PT and then they go home and they've got whatever Holland and Barrett decided to sell them. You know, I've got lavender drops on my pillow and, you know, I've got an Epsom salt bath kicking off. I, and not to say lavender and Epsom salts aren't strategic tools, but it's not rocket science to bring that domain into the gym floor. And that to me creates an opportunity for the PT to be more effective. You know, before, we, before, and everyone's always interested in immediate, you know, cash riches, right? As in, how do I get to do what you do, Ollie? You're speaking to this organization, et cetera. I'm speaking to that organization because I've done a shed load of consultations. You know, I, I've learned from people. And I think, you know, competency should be, should be sought. You know, and I think if you are a personal trainer who isn't competent across broader domains than movement, then you'll be now, you'll be, you'll be stuck in body composition and sets of reps. If you want to be a, a well-being professional, you have to broaden your scope of practice. And before you start spreading the word about that, you need to get good at it. You need to, you need to have done 10, 20. You're better after 10 than one. You're better after a hundred than 10 and you're better after a thousand than a hundred. And you know, spoiler alert, if you want to be a good coach, you've got to do the hours. You've got to spend time with people and recognize that when someone walks in who doesn't fit one of your criteria, how you adapt and how you, how you come around to that. I think, first of all, you know, I think breadth of practice, you know, you've got to be a better practitioner. You'll be more effective. You'll get better outcomes. And then good things will come from that before you say, I want to go and do 
corporate well-being or I want to be a holistic well-being coach and you haven't built it on a bed of rock and that that's 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 a, a not particularly short answer to that I, say, I think that elevator took me to the moon and back <laughs> however however it's a worthwhile trip it's a worthwhile trip selective here I just chose to ignore that particular elevator pitch part sorry no, again, again there's a couple of things that jumped out at me there that I think is is worthwhile digging into and you spoke first of all about recovery and then you also that the phrase you used towards the end was a, a well-being professional as well now i, I want to come back to well-being professional in a moment. recovery is a fascinating one isn't it like you say back in the day when we did our our pt qualifications and our studies and all that stuff it was yeah it was yeah you you do your training we were, i come from a lot of sport and recovery was very much part of it. although recovery is very different to what it was 20 years ago when i, when I was playing sports with these and never went Recovery has always been part of it, yet we do seem to have forgotten, as a society, forgotten about that. I mean, I was running a, a program yesterday for a load of, for 21 emerging leaders. And I was running, talking about rethinking stress and recovery was very much part of this conversation in that whilst you're not sports people, you are putting yourself under repeated stress throughout the day. How do you recover? And they looked at me like I was crazy. Well, what do you mean? We just get on with stuff. I'm like, okay. And the long story short is we then went into sleep and movement and nutrition and, and yeah. men, uh, mental health and uh, self-care and all sorts of things. And to your point is that I'm not an expert on sleep. However, like you say, I have seven bullet points. Create a cocoon in your bedroom. The good pre-sleep routine, i.e. no laptops, no electronics, etc. Uh, no caffeine after three o'clock or two o'clock, whatever your bedtime, all these kinds. Yeah. It's just important. Yeah. I think as an industry, we try to complicate things. We don't need to be a doctor, a scientist, a sleep scientist, to be able to help someone improve their sleep. Yes. It would probably help if you read a good book around it or read a few research papers. However, you would learn enough from that. So how, why we sleep, Dr. Matt Walker, you yeah. read that book, there'll be enough knowledge in there. If you can interpret it, put it into practice yourself yeah. to help your clients change. I, I agree entirely. I, and I, I agree. And, and my worry there is, again, it doesn't give a product at the end. So I think, I think the knowledge is there. I think people are worried about scope of practice on two levels. And, and PTs, I, I generally break into two categories. Those with, with a very defined scope of practice that they won't get into anything they haven't been formally trained on, that wasn't in my level three, and therefore I'm, I'm not going to progress that conversation, that's medical. And I quite like that person because they're very trainable. And, and nice. It's good integrity. Good integrity and start there. And there's the other scope of practice which says, oh, I just saw Huberman lab. So you need, you know, <laughs> NAD infusion into your spine. And, you know, within 24 hours, you, you'll, you'll have grown the third leg and, you know, you'll run a marathon. So, and again, there's great quality in, in Huberman labs, but it's, it's a research distillery, not necessarily a coaching platform. So we have to find a way in which we can take, you know, grounded science and then deploy it into communicable products and i think that bit is is missing in terms of what do i actually say and and also when's the point when this has gone beyond me so in the practical stress resilience course we say look here's a red flag system that says this is stress this is depression there's the point you refer to a gp there's the point you own you've got to know when you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them and i think that that skill is is Interesting. There's too many people who hold them for too long, and there's too many people who fold them too early. I'm talking about theoretical cards here. Before anyone wonders where I've gone completely insane, you know. And, and so, within that scope of practice, I think that there's a huge opportunity for a broader scope, albeit using, as you say, you know, having these seven things that you systematically tick off. And if we, you know, pragmatically went through your seven actions you deploy, that will solve probably 85, 90, maybe 95% of sleep problems. But you've got to be able to find a way into that conversation and out of it without finding yourself, you know, swimming in, in, in water that's too deep for you. So I, think I love that idea of scope of practice. And, and like you say, that is, a, that is a challenge and it's a good challenge to have. And for someone who thinks, well, this isn't what I do, it's not part of me. I think we do need to rethink what we do as an industry and what we have and the, the capabilities we have to help people. Because yeah. we are very lucky. We have an amazing opportunity to truly help people change their lives and, and have healthier, longer lives, i.e. increase their health span. Yes. However, I don't think we've really captured that yet. And this scope of practice can be a concern. And I think one of the reasons 
PTs don't want to fold them, as you said, because that's going to be a loss of earnings, for example. Yes. That straight away, it's, well, if my client does have a sleep problem and I send them to a sleep scientist, a sleep specialist, I might not see that client again. And I understand that because everyone needs to make the money to pay the bills, et cetera. Totally understand that. However, what I would say to anyone listening is that your integrity will go a long way. And for that one person that you feel that is beyond your scope of practice, be brave and let them go. However, for, create a network of people that you trust to yeah, say, sure. you know what? We've tried these six things to improve your sleep. It hasn't worked. However, I know a sleep expert who has spent 10 years studying it. She applies it daily. This is who I'd like you to go and see. And off they go. And therefore, as a, as a practitioner, I think it is, first of all, as you've already said, well, he is becoming multi-dimensional in your practice. Hold on. Understanding. And this is interesting. I had this, this conversation in a previous podcast with Casey Bell McKill, this idea of specialize and generalize. And whilst we're not talking directly about that, it is that idea of knowing a little about a lot, yet knowing enough yes. help your clients about a lot of different things. And I think what you're saying is that's where we need to be going. We need to be understanding self-care. We need to be understanding how to rest and regenerate properly. We need to understand how to move more effectively outside of the gym as well, potentially. We need to understand the basics of nutrition. We need to understand sleep. We need to, something if we have time, I want to get into is we need to understand how to interpret data from wearables. Totally. Hold that thought before you get into that because no. I'll track. So I think that, that, that idea of a scope and scared of losing someone is really important. I'm just going to share a quick story, Ollie, before I come back to you. Many years ago, I was a member of a virgin gym near me. I was training with my rugby mates who were in there all the time and there's PTs in there and, and they, I was PTing and, and started presenting and, and people kind of knew what I did. I was working with Viper and whatnot. And one of the PTs in there came up to me and said, Adam, I've got a client and she wants to get into Olympic lifting. I've helped to get her strong and I've helped her change various things in her lifestyle. However, she wants to get into Olympic lifting. I don't have that skill set. However, I know you do. So I, I have an Olympic lifting background. I learned with an Olympic lifting coach or the Olympic lifting coach when I learned to lift. And I was like, that's amazing because she had best interest of her client at heart. And I think as long as the practitioner is client centric or client focused, yes, then there will be a positive outcome. Now I actually turned that person down because I wasn't, I don't work with people as in my geographical area. I don't. Yeah. And at the time, however, though, if I ever needed someone to refer a PT, to refer people to guess who I went to, I went to her because oh. I knew she had integrity. So whilst in the short term, you might lose a client because you have to refer out to a different practitioner. I can assure you that that will pay dividends or that will pay forward in the future. So, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And I agree with affiliate medical professionals. You, know, you, you seek out sleep specialists and go, look, I've tried the basic things that hasn't worked. You know, can I pass them over to you? You won't just get that client back. You'll, you'll get five from the sleep specialist who says, look, I can only treat the symptom I'm treating, but I need someone who's a broader lifestyle professional. So, you know, the, the medical professional are dealing with people all the time where lifestyle is a, is a significant, maybe causative, but certainly a major factor in the issue they're treating. They need a trusted pair of hands and, and the medical profession doesn't particularly trust fitness. And there's a credibility piece there that will always face an uphill battle. And I, and I know, you know, the likes of Sims Bar are doing good work. I think they get mixed bag, but I've, I've spent time with Tara. Dylan, who I think has got a very clear vision of, of, of extending the scope of practice of, of fitness into well-being, but wants to do it in a way that, that ensures there is robust and consistent quality. And, and that was one of the reasons I wanted my stress course to be accredited to SimSpa, because I want this to be part of that fitness person's mindset that they can do these things, but they've got to do them in a slightly formulaic fashion. But I think that that sense of let that person go. But what we also have as an opportunity of PT is becoming the hub and spoke, right? So if I if I am curating, you know, basic sleep, basic nutrition, again, before there's a point where I need to refer it on movement strategies, not all of that now requires my physical presence in a location. So if I'm selling a relationship that has some kind of check-in on those actions, let's imagine my remit is to get your energy up and we know we're going to do two group, you know, conditioning classes at my facility. I've given you some nutritional stuff. You might be tracking it on my fitness pal. Why don't I have a bi-weekly call to check how that's going? And by the way, 
You're also looking to improve your sleep. And here we come on to wearables. You're also wearing a Whoop or an Aura. And I want to review progress through that. Suddenly I'm on a retainer model, not a transactional model. Love that. Absolutely love that. The, the hub and the spoke is such a brilliant example of how a robust and resilient PT business should look, in my opinion. I think probably in your opinion as well. And a word I've used a lot, especially through COVID, was this lockdown, was this idea. It's about building an ecosystem. Any good PT, any good coach needs to build that ecosystem around them so it's sustainable, it has longevity in there. And like you say, it then stops becoming transactional and it becomes relational. And that's so, so far, so, so important. Right. Brilliant stuff. Right. Before we get into wearables, I do want to dive into that before we finish briefly, because I know you need to dash in a moment. Good. Okay. Your top three tips for future-proofing a PT business. And this has to be brief. So this is literally high level, three things to future-proof a PT business. Oh my God. I mean, let's be, let me also be pragmatic. I don't have a PT business. So PT businesses will know this better than I. I think future-proofing would be diversity of skills. So, you know, you can't, if you're just a movement center, you'll be stuck as a movement center. Uh, I think, uh, you know, building a affiliate practitioner community will bring better, better outcomes to your clients and equally um, ensure you get a pipeline of new clients coming in from avenues you potentially haven't explored previously. Uh, and I would, I, I would suggest some, which will take us into our next point, some metric of effectiveness above and beyond retention. That's if I go to any PT and go, how effective are you? They're going to start talking cash numbers. I said, how many, how many people got fitter? How many people got more well? How many people, if you don't measure it, you can't prove it. I'm not suggesting we become obsessed with capture, but don't expect retention if the only outcome of success is a set of scales and maybe even not a set of scales. So we've got to be clever to prove that, that, that the juice is worth the squeeze, as some might say. Love it. Those are three amazing tips, whether you're a business, a PT business, i.e. multiple people, or you're just a, a one-man band, as it were, just doing your thing and, and just helping people out in the world. I think those, those are three brilliant top tips. Right, let's dig into wearables. And then I've got to ask the final question about saunas, cold tubs, etc. Oh, yes. Where was that? Obviously a hot topic at the moment. And you've mentioned two of the more popular ones, Whoop, Aura Ring. Yes, you've got your Apple Watches that seem to be every evolution. The Apple Watch gives you more access to different physiological metrics now. And then yep. there's on, maybe on, for want of a better phrase, the lower end, you've got your Fitbits, et cetera. So a whole range of wearables give you all sorts of data. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to go into which one's the best because that's going to be very subjective. To lots of different people yet. Yeah, I think the question that would serve the listeners best is how do you get the most out of a wearable device as a PT coach? It's, a, it's, a, it's the right question. I think that you, you don't start with the wearable, you start with the question, you know, what is the question I can't answer? So I can't answer why that, you know, you, you seem to be knackered all the time. Well, then I might want some indicator around your sleep quality. I can't answer why you're not losing weight. Then I might want some marker to cover your daily activity levels. I can't answer, you know, why you get in a mid-afternoon energy slump, then I might want some continuous glucose monitor. We have to start with the question, not the product. And I think the products are telling us that they're the, the single point solution to save everyone. And they would do because they are selling you a product. So I, th I think, you know, we need to start with what, what is the blind spot I've got here? And, and data would be one of two categories for me. One is to evidence something we both know is happening, but to quantify it. So pedometers are classic wearable. You know, I, I'm not aware of how inactive I am until I'm revealed. Then I can use that to set targets and calibrate. And that's a very straightforward activity. And again, if we're being candid, no one in any fitness environment is going to achieve much if they focus on exercise without movement. So I can't burst out three 45 minute sessions a week and then be inactive for, you know, for six, seven of those days and, and expect any kind of meaningful health movement. So movement and exercise, two different animals. I think that, you know, the interesting tech are the ones which measure something I couldn't really quantify without the tech. And that's why I like heart rate variability and I do like continuous glucose monitors. And we'll start to see EEG electroencephalography sort of brain capture as well to, to start telling me something that, you know, I, I, I deeply ignored and now has become a tangible reality. You know, we have this sort of false consensus that it won't happen to me or that's not relevant to me until you go, boom, there you are. I told you booze affected your sleep. 
Now there you are not sleeping. I told you, you couldn't do caffeine after three. Boom. There you are in stress as you get into bed. Boom. I told you that, you know, you, you can't get away with a sandwich for lunch. Boom. There's your continuous glucose spike and fall, you know, in response to that sandwich. Or conversely, you did drink and you did sleep and you did drink caffeine and you were fine and you did have a sandwich. So if you want a personalized lifestyle, we can't start with the behavior and call it bad. Yeah. We have to start with the symptom that I can't get on top of, see if there's a piece of physiology that contributes and then associate the behavior to the physiology, to the output. And that, that, that again, overcomplicating it. But I think on a simplified level, anyone involved in, in movement and recovery, who's not got to grips with heart rate variability. I would say you're, you're, you're going to need to get that skill sooner rather than later, because it's a hell of a metric. And if, if you are in the business of load recovery, restoration, then HRV is your golden ticket, <clears throat> but not knowing about it, isn't going to wash. If I go to a gym where I've got 40% of people wearing whoops and the trainers don't understand heart rate variability, I think you run the risk of, of missing the boat. You know, you're, you are the blockbuster of, of the new world. And, and I think. You know, it, and there's a reason whoop or, you know, levels, super sapiens aren't selling to gyms. They're selling directly to consumers. They don't believe there's a capable practitioner in there to curate their information. And, and that's disappointing to me. So. Well, actually, and just for anyone listening, who is unsure what Oli meant by the, that you don't want to be the blockbuster of this world. The, the story is that, that so there will be people listening, but they don't know what blockbuster yeah, is. Yeah. You're spot on. Great uh, hosting. And so blockbuster, they were a, you would go and rate your videos for a blockbuster on a Friday or a Saturday night. You go down there, you spend an hour looking around which video you're going to choose to go home and put your VHS recorder. And they were, they were global, huge, but I don't know what they were worth. And Netflix approached and said, Hey, we've got this idea that you can actually do this via, well, for, initially it's about sending it back to people, sending it to people and sending it back. And we have ambitions to then to go bigger and, and use technology to grow this kind of video business, which was video back then. And Blockbuster turned around and said, no, we don't think it'll ever take off. And who's, who is now turning over billions of dollars? Netflix, who no longer exists, Blockbuster. So I think the moral of that story is that if you're not on board with HIV at this point, if you don't do it very soon, then as a, as a successful, meaningful practitioner, you might have missed the boat. And I, a perfect description of the, of the scenario, the, you know, data is moving fast and, and, you know, I, I, I got slightly into TikTok because if I didn't understand TikTok, I won't understand the thing after TikTok and the thing after TikTok. I don't do, I don't do TikTok, but I've got 10 year old kids. If I'm not au fait with this, then what happens when it, when it comes to step after that? Technology is moving fast. You know, we're getting incredible real-time biometric data that's going to be available and, and fitness needs to work out if it wants to be over there doing sets and reps, or it wants to be at the heart of helping people curate their lifestyle and be the hub of that spoke. And again, if you miss out on this interim piece of data, whatever comes next is going to be even more complicated. Yeah. You know, ultimately it'll become simplified, but if you don't get HRV and what role it has in the work you're doing in the gym, then then you're not future-proof by any means whatsoever. And just one thing I'd like to get your thoughts on quickly is, this is my take anyway, I think wearable techs are amazing. I say they, they uncover blind spots with our clients and for ourselves. Yeah. First of all, as a coach, you need to be embracing, bracing before you even begin to discuss it with your clients. You need to avoid it for six months, understand the data, what it means, what it impacts, how it affects you, what you need to change in your program. If you read, if your HRV is low, or if it's high, what does that mean to your program? You need to put all this into practice yourself. Yeah, However, right. I also think there is a danger with wearables and I've, I've had this with clients and this is something conversation we've had. I think wearables allow you to become more self-aware, more yeah. conscious of the choices that you make. You, you pointed out is that, okay, I know that if I have two pints, I actually sleep. Okay. I know if I have four pints, I have a terrible night's sleep. Well it's now making conscious choices when you're socializing, doing whatever it is you're doing. For me, the danger is people then, that the saying goes analysis by paralysis, they focus so much on what that data is telling them that they forget to actually live their lives. Well, and so I think that's, that's the danger sometimes with wearables and with some people. And I was one of those people. I wore a roof for almost a year. And then I understand the way my body works fairly well. I've been very self-aware for many years. And I choose not to use a roof now because I'd be looking at you going, well, how can I improve this? How can I improve that? And there's only so much you can do before you just forget to live your life. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant and valid point. I think 
for me, data calibrates, consolidates, and then it should be, you know, dropped. You know, it's not, I, I, I've dealt with clients who, who describe their symptoms through their technology. So they're like, oh, I'm tired today because I'm 45% on my, on my whipping up. Are you tired today? You know, the data has to, you, you have to, or whatever level of coaching or, or health, you know, health management you're in, you start with the story and then you fit the data to how you, how you build on that story. If someone comes in and they feel amazing, they're happy, they're highly, highly performing and the data doesn't corroborate that, don't give them a problem they didn't have. And we've got to be really careful. The data isn't sensitive enough or, or intelligent enough at this stage to override how the individual feels. Normally there's a matchup, but where there isn't, we've got to be very careful. And I, I agree, there's no piece of tech for life. We know if you sleep well, your sleep monitor will probably prove it. We know if you don't sleep well, your sleep monitor will probably exacerbate it. You know, it, it's, sleep is a ludicrous thing that, that thrives on the absence of data over analysis. You know, it, it needs simplicity. It needs an absence of noise. And suddenly we bring in 15 different bits of, of wearable tech to try and quantify it and measure it. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. So well, there's nuance in there. Becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Is that your report, your device is telling you you haven't slept well, so you're like, oh, I feel so tired. When actually, if you didn't have that device telling you you hadn't slept well, you might be going, actually, I don't feel too bad today. And it's that yeah, self-fulfilling prophecy. And the only way I, I can relate this, I think it sets limiting beliefs sometimes, not all the time. It, it can be fantastic. I do think we have to be aware that if we rely too heavily on the data, it can change the way we process and think about ourselves as well. In yeah, a, I, as well. Right. So data after. Person first, data after. Love it. And I think we might get you back to do a whole talk on data analysis and data capture. I think in, in wearables, I think that could be a really valuable talk for the listeners. Okay, uh, final thing then, please, Ollie. As you know, the question I'm asking is obviously cold bars, uh, cold tubs are very, very on trend in on, on Instagram and socials at the moment. We see all sorts of people jump into their cold tubs in their gardens with snow on them and, and breaking the ice. And it's brilliant. I, I love cold therapy. I do it every, every day myself, have done it for several years. However, are you a cold tub or a sauna man? Sauna all day. We've not Thank had a cold tub person on here yet. Okay, you're a sauna man. If you were to choose three people from the world of health and fitness to spend 20 minutes in your sauna with, apart from Hugh Hanley, who would it be? Great, great 20 minute postage as well. All in for 20 minutes. I've got, I've got two businesses alongside. I work for Harry and one business and I, and I, co-founded Future Practice with Harry Jameson. He's a high-end performance coach and, and well-being entrepreneur. I love Harry. So, you know, in that sauna, he, he brought a real empathy for me and the understanding of the, the ins and outs of personal training and the high-end personal training and his work in originally in high-end luxury hospitalities, then running retreats, then latterly, you know, setting up pillar. So I'd put Harry in there because he's always got insights that I can learn from. And he, he does, he's brought an understanding of the industry to me that I didn't have. And his, he is just a great human being to spend time in. And we, we do frequently sauna and uh, he's got a mag he's a magnificent specimen. So Harry Jameson would be one. A lot, you know, what I find fascinating about well-being is both sides of the debate. So I'd probably want two practitioners in there who don't agree with each other philosophically. And, and I find the, the, the jarring between empirical evidence and practitioner-led experience a really interesting piece. So someone I follow online, I've never met him, is, is Alan Arrigan. Yeah. Um, and, and he does a very, you know, he, he interrogates evidence extremely well. You know, I, I like his work on the statins and, and cardiovascular disease. And he is always quick to say, this is what is evidence and this is what is not. And I think that perspective is entirely valid and required. And too often people run off with things and, 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 you know, because they saw it work on one, they have survivor bias and, and we have an anecdotal dangerous methodology. Flip to that, you might go for someone like Mark Hyman, the American functional medicine doctor who, who brought and you know, was a pioneer of gut health and, and produced the pegan diet, sort of vegan plant-based hybrid and a few other things. And he was one of the originators of, of functional medicine, the use of, of you know, non-diagnostic testing to curate lifestyle strategy. And I think lots of the work he does, which would include saunas, would include cryo, would include fasting, would include is robust, but it doesn't fit with the evidence. And I think there's a interesting point there if we're trying to create a template and best practice if we're stuck completely to double blind placebo trials we're, we're stuck because mm. they haven't moved and can't move at the pace that, that, that the world has evolved and changed against human physiology but if we don't absorb science we don't move with the, the recognized science and mark Hyman is far from anti-science you know i think he, he he would just have a lot of things that are not empirically proven where do we find a sweet spot for giving good quality advice to an individual so I'd like to see that argument 
flesh out. And I think there would be a really interesting discussion. Uh, and Harry and I could sort of sit back and just enjoy that while it's taking place. Sounds like a pretty, pretty amazing story to, to be at. That is for sure. Well, Oli, thank you so much for just sharing that wealth of knowledge with, with myself and with the listeners out there. It's been fantastic. My biggest take from that, I think, is as a personal trainer, if you want to have that robust, resilient, sustainable business that you, you're, you're super proud of in the future, then you need to look at how you can be a, be a multi-dimensional coach, focusing on well-being versus fitness. Be my my overall take from that, Ollie. And that would be a perfect take of what, what I'm, I truly believe in. And again, without saying the fitness industry has done pretty well doing what it does. So that's not for everyone. If you've got a blood and guts fitness facility, people are happy, thriving. It's not a call to change. There's just a broader opportunity if that isn't floating your boat or getting the results you're after. So let, let's not castigate fitness in its current form because there's so much good in there. I just believe there is a bigger, broader opportunity for those who want to embrace it. Love it. Absolutely love it. And final thing, give your qualification a plug then. Go for it. Oh, you're a good man. So I've got, a, again, www.futurepractice.org. You'll find practical stress resilience, nine and a half hours of video content, fully digital course, Simspar accredited, ISSA accredited, ACSM accredited, qualifies people to, to have a narrative around stress, recovery, sleep, allows you to test cortisol, allows you to run heart rate variability. It, it's, it adds a toolkit to people who may not have that toolkit and starts the ability to move out of the gym into things like corporate well-being, if that's an avenue people want to pursue. Brilliant. Again, Ollie, thank you so much. Loved having you on here. Thanks, I think pal. we definitely need to get you back to talk about wearables at some point. Lock me in. Can't think of any better. Thanks, pal. Great, great interview. Hey, Adam here. Firstly, a big thanks to all of you for listening to this episode. I hope you got some great learnings from it. Now it's time to go and put them into practice. A massive thanks also to Ollie for sharing his brilliant insights and experiences to help you grow and thrive. Please do go give him a follow on the usual social media platforms. Thanks also to your personal training for sponsoring the show. If you've enjoyed and learned something from the show, then please do like and subscribe, share and review the podcast to help it grow and reach others who will benefit from the insights of the amazing guests. If you have anyone you would like me to chat with, DM me on Instagram, Adam Daniel MBA, and I'll see what I can do. Until next week, keep learning, growing and thriving. Thank you.